Hi everyone, it's your host Sarah Berry and you're listening to the new Road Rage podcast. It's been a very long time since the last time you heard from me. I'm super sorry about that. Um, I wish I had a good excuse, but I don't really. I can say that for the last three weeks I've been on a gorgeous holiday in Cornwall and am now feeling super relaxed and content and tanned and happy and all of the things that you are when you've been on a vacation. Um, And that's why it's been three weeks since I had this conversation with the fantastic Nick Moffat that I am about to share with you today. It's going to be a little bit different from normal in the sense that Nick and I just chatted and chatted and chatted and so this is going to be a two-parter. So what you'll hear today is part one and I will release part two next week. So you have that to look forward to. There's going to be more. But then I am going to be taking a little break for the summer. As some of you will know, I'm taking a three-month sabbatical from work and I'm going to be all around the UK and my life's going to be a little bit less predictable than normal and I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to get to these episodes with regularity and rather than keep you guys waiting, I prefer to say this will be the last sort of batch of episodes until September. All of that being said, I would love to hear from every single one of you about what you've enjoyed about the new Road Rage podcast so far, about where you think we could go further and how it could be better. Um, My own understanding of what this podcast is and what it's about has really changed since I started a couple of months ago. So season two will probably look a little bit different, but I really want your input into what it should look like. So please get in touch with me on Twitter at Sarah J underscore Berry or at the New Rage road rage podcast and let me know what you think but for now i hope you enjoy my conversation with nick as much as i enjoyed my conversation with nick and to get started i'll let him introduce himself i'm nick moffat as you can probably tell from my accent i'm originally from america i grew up in seattle which is sort of western western northwest we call the pacific northwest although it is not the northwest of the pacific my father had polio as a child. And as a result, he was left with one leg longer than the other or shorter than the other, however you want to perspective on that. And he had flat feet and walking was extremely difficult for him. He got all kinds of exemptions from the draft during the Vietnam War and that kind of thing. Moving and walking was difficult for him. And he had a lot of things he had to do to sort of take care of himself in that way to make sure his legs were working and his circulation was good and that kind of thing. And yet he was someone who would always take the bus to work. He would always walk up the very steep hill that we lived on in Seattle, because Seattle has a very hilly topology. It's a bit like San Francisco in some ways. And my mother also was very much a a why take the lift when you can take the stairs kind of person. And so I grew up with this sort of this, this model of activity as being sort of integral to just how you got around and explored and interacted with your local area. I was born slowly after the, the petrol crises, the oil shortage, the oil shocks of the US and worldwide. And so as a result, the city I lived in, Seattle, had a, just invested a lot of money into its, its bus system and its public transit system, trying to rebuild what it had thrown away over the previous 20 or 30 years. So we had a pretty decent system that I could make use of as a kid, and I was very much encouraged to use that. We actually ended up having two cars out front of our house, and yet, near as I can tell, they would be used for sort of emergency journeys and to church on Sunday 
and perhaps it was it was something considered. It was something where you'd ha- we had these two cars. One was inherited from a grandmother, but they were only used for absolutely when they had to be. And generally, what we would tend to do is take the bus or walk somewhere and something like that. I remember my mother used to insist that we take the one mile walk, which I never knew it was a mile. If you'd told me that was a mile, I would have said, no way, a mile is a terribly long distance. That's only like 12 blocks, right? And yet we'd go there with backpacks to do our grocery shopping, right? And that was just the way, the way I grew up. And so, yeah, so I sort of, I'd always lived as someone who just sort of got around using public transportation and walking and that kind of thing. And when I was young, I got a, I got a bicycle that had stabilizers, which we in the US called training wheels. And I, I rode around, it was a toy. It was something I sort of enjoyed as a, my backyard, basically. Maybe, maybe slowly tooling up and down the pavement. But it was only when someone said, oh, I'll teach you how to ride that thing with those training wheels off. And I said, great, I'd love to, because I want to be like the big kids. And he said, yeah, what you got to do is you got to put the seat way up high, because real people cycle with the seat way up high so that you're high off the ground and you can go really fast. And yeah, we'll go over to the local uh, high school, and which has a large sort of tarmac playing field. And I'll give you a shove and you'll just go really fast. You'll fall over several times, but it's okay. The scrapes will heal. And I just heard all of this and I said, um, actually, no, thanks. I'll, I'll keep the stabilizers on. And so I was actually, I'm trying to remember, I think I was 14 or 15 when I actually learned how to ride a bike by myself. And what it was, I mentioned we lived on a hill Well, the hill kind of bottomed out halfway down our block. And a neighbor kid had a, an old toy bike. It was very literally, it was specifically marketed as a girl's bike. It had the step through frame and it had flowers all over it. It was kind of a pretty teal color. And I was just sitting on it, just idling around at one point and realized that I'd lifted my feet up off the ground and I'd kind of glided down a little bit on this gentle slope. And I went, huh. And so I pushed myself back and did it again. And eventually I worked out like the instinctive stuff. I couldn't have described it to you at the time of how to keep this thing from falling over while going forward. And the, and the rest was, was, was wonderful. I just loved it. I went, I, I asked for a full-size bike, which given that this would have been late eighties, early nineties in Seattle, it was mountain bike time. And so that might not have been the best choice, but it was a, it was a bike that I used to get around a little bit. We had a couple of bike lanes that I just painted stripes in the, in the door zone of some, some streets that were actually dual carriageway in, in large parts. So it was a little bit terrifying in some ways, but I, I managed to make journeys, make trips to, to go to, to, you know, computer user group meetings and that kind of thing on this bike by myself. And it just felt really great. But Seattle is much, much hillier than London. And so, I mean, getting up the hills wasn't a problem for me because I felt like eh, there's no shame in me getting off and pushing up this one. I mean, it's, it's got an incredibly steep grade. It's no one should have built the streets straight up this way. It should have had switchbacks, but I actually, it was going downhill where I realized that it took me a full three blocks to come to a complete stop after I picked up speed. And I actually could not have stopped at two of those junctions was when I went, eh, and I felt a little bit uh, nervous, but, and then I moved to San Francisco itself, which is also just really hilly and really busy. And it just, it wasn't for me at that point. And so really it was, it was London. It was when I moved to Ealing. So first of all, we, I taught my daughter to ride her bike on a little, one of those, those uh, Walker bikes, those little bike bikes, the, 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 it's a balance bike. Yeah. So I, I got her a balance bike and she picked that up very, very quickly. She was very, she did exactly the same thing I did. She was going through Ravenscourt Park in Hammersmith. And she just went down a gentle slope and lifted up her feet and just kind of coasted a long distance. And I thought, great. So she wanted me to get a bike when she was, when she was learning. And I promised her, listen, if you, if you could learn to do everything by yourself, because she was very good at steering and she was very good at pedaling and keeping the thing up. 
but her method of braking for a long time was actually, she was so good at steering that she would just steer the bike into the basketball hoop poles. So the narrow sort of flag poles. And so she was able to just sort of come to a stop just by sort of bumping against that. And so I said, okay, learn how to use the brakes first. Okay, she learned how to use the brakes. Learn how to, learn how to come from a, a dead stop, which was difficult. That was probably the last thing she learned was how to get it started from a dead stop because there were just a couple of extra things of coordination that uh, she needed to sort out. And I, I said, okay, then I'll, then I'll get a bike for myself and we can ride together. And at that point, Transport for London had only just expanded the hire bike scheme all the way west to Ravenscourt Park. That's, it's still the westernmost hire station. And so I said, well, I'm not getting a bike. I'm just going to rent this and ride around with you then because then we'll ride around for a while. And then, and then that's that. But then we moved out to Ealing and I got a bike of my own. So it's clear from listening to this, the way Nick's life set him up to be a cyclist and an active travel enthusiast. But I also really wanted to know if there were any thinkers or individuals or professionals who inspired his love of cities. So that's what we chatted about next. I had always been a sort of a student of of urban studies. So that was actually something I took at university. So yeah, so I studied this stuff. So you know, I, I recommended to you, I recommended uh, Jane Jacobs, Death and Life of Great American Cities, which is a fantastic book. And I, I actually I have my copy right here by my desk at all times. That's a fantastic one. And Jacobs was formative. She led some of the early anti-freeway revolts in New York City and just sort of started the path of what it meant to be an urbanist in America, what it meant to be a defender and lover of cities. And she would uh, she would tell you some things that were sometimes counterintuitive, she would say, oh, well, these parks in San Francisco that they've built, where there are all these little hidden nooks and crannies. So the police were furious about them. They said, oh, there's going to be crime all over the place. But actually, the way this, this sort of Union Square park was designed, there was privacy, but there wasn't secrecy. I mean, as in like, you could always stumble across one of these nooks, or you could always see sort of angled to them. So they weren't like, closed off rooms, but the police were mad that they couldn't fly a helicopter over it and spot what everyone was doing. But they were, they were, it was an incredible park. I mean, David Appleyard, we were actually assigned David Appleyard and he was actually out of UC Berkeley was where he was doing that research. And it's about, it's about some streets in San Francisco. So it's streets I've actually walked down 20 years after he did his research. And so I recognized those locations and thought, oh yeah. I'm just going to jump in here and give a little bit more context to this Donald Appleyard reference. For those of you who don't know, Donald Appleyard was a social scientist and he had a theory that the busier a road is with traffic, the more likely it was that it would impact on the relationships of the people who lived on that road. So he did a study where he compared three roads, one with really heavy traffic, one with medium traffic and one with light traffic, and spoke to the people who lived there about their friendships and their relationships with their neighbours and other members of their community and found that on average, the people who lived on the quiet roads had couple more friends than those who lived on the busy ones. It's one of the theories that underpins a lot of urban work that people do now that making streets safer for pedestrians and cyclists is good in its own right, but reducing traffic also makes communities more connected and more resilient. Anyway, back to Nick. Because one of the streets that he chose was a street that one with the high traffic is one that actually it's a one-way street that has something like five lanes in one direction of people who've just driven off of a major motorway a big freeway that, that um 
after the earthquake became like the, the end of the freeway. So all the traffic coming north into San Francisco from the peninsula would end up sort of dumping out onto these main streets. And one of these high traffic streets is, is one of the ones that, that, that he measured in his famous study of livable streets. But I also, I also had a lot of fun because I would read some rabble rousers, some, some sort of bad boys like James Howard Kunstler, who I wouldn't recommend as a serious thinker. He's someone who just likes to sort of be a sort of the radio shock DJ of urbanism, kind of a stopped clock is right twice a day situation sometimes, but by and large, his, his motives were kind of in the right place, even if his methods were a little bit, a little bit uh, laddish. I still hadn't quite worked out in my head the role of cycling in cities, right? I didn't quite see it because it, they tended to all be the, the, the types you would see advocating cycling in the 90s in the West Coast of the US tended to be two general types. One would be very much what you would expect, sort of this, someone who would have an extremely lightweight frame and who would be optimizing everything for speed and, and proud of the fact that they'd you know, bought the best possible thing. And then the other type tended to be what we used to call a sort of a granola personality, someone who was very much uh, you know, crunchy, someone who, someone who was very much a friends of the earth, very much a Greenpeace kind of character, someone who thought it was just the right thing to do. And I was definitely closer to that probably than the, uh, the performance aspect. But then also at this time, the, the couriers were starting to come in and bring this sort of punk sensibility with their fixed gear bikes and their, and now the, the, if you think cycle couriers were wild in London, in San Francisco, they would absolutely take those hills up and down. And on top of that, San Francisco has cable cars. Not that people often confuse the, the trams or the streetcars with the cable cars. The cable cars actually have a giant steel arm that reaches into a wide slot in the middle of the roadway to grab onto a moving cable that's pulled by engines in a machine house somewhere else in San Francisco. So it's imagine it's a giant conveyor belt under the street that these vehicles actually grab onto and let go of. Okay, so that means you have this incredibly wide slot in the middle of the street. And if you think tram tracks are bad, I mean, this is one that you can actually lose your front fork into, right? I mean, they're just these big gaps in the street. And what's running underneath is this, it's not moving that fast, but it's a steel cable that's constantly moving. And so it will absolutely, if you press down on it, it can, it can shred your tires. So those guys are amazing. They are, they are hard. And I've seen them come up with some, because I used to just sit and watch the sort of the the, the, the ballet of the streets, as, uh, as uh, Jacobs put it. I'd watch that and I would watch the, the couriers meet and they would, they would come sometimes with their bicycles just shredded from whatever it was that had happened to them. But they were, it was a badge of honor to them. And they were always happy to just slap these things back together and just go hell for leather again, back up these hills. So yeah, so I, so I, I didn't have a good model of coming from, I didn't have any good role models in America for like what this meant. But I did have some friends in the Netherlands who has really helped me sort of formulate, you know, what it meant. And I think the first thing that really got to me must've been around, I wanna say it was around 2002. There was, someone made a blog post, even the word blog still sounded new and fancy, but it said, listen, you folks think you understand what cycling is. Let me just paint a picture for you. This here is, I don't know, I always, for some reason I always remember it as Katya. Let's say, this is Katya, right? Katya lives in the Netherlands. She wants to go buy a bike. Now you might have recommendations. You might say, you might have recommendations about group sets. You might have thoughts about the, the, the right types of tires of tubeless or whatever. When Katja goes to buy a bike, she tells the shop owner she wants a blue bike. She gets a blue bike because this isn't a racing car. This isn't some kind of fancy bit of kit. 
this is a, a bog standard bike and she just wants one that's a bit personalized. It's a bit like her. And this isn't going to be something that she's going to spend a lot of money on because everyone has a bike and it's just a utility. And it's just one of these things. Like if you go out and you, you choose a notebook to write in, you're gonna say, well, I want a red one, right? And that's, that's the level of investment that you have in bikes in a place where bikes are commonplace. And I thought, okay, that's, that's actually really useful. And that actually helped me in a lot of fields where I would be an enthusiast about something. And I would realize, no, 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 they just want a blue bike, right? They don't, they don't care about, I'm in, I'm in IT, I'm in computers, right? So I would, you know, they, they don't care about what chip is inside this thing. They just want something that can do spell check, right? That's the, that's the end of it, right? That's all they actually care about. So yeah, that was, that really helps. And you end up with these things, these funny statistics, like the vast number of older women, which is the, the population that cycles the least in the UK tends to be the population that cycles the most in the Netherlands. I mean, why is that? What are the, what are the, what are the affordances that make this likely in a place like that? Right. And what are we doing wrong? How are we, by, how are we by, by appealing to those old types of, of cyclists that I used to encounter in the US, how are we, by, by trying to build for them, how are we actually you know, excluding the vast proportion of the population that, that should be doing this, that could be doing this, it could be helping the entire city by making it a little bit more human scale and, and doing all these wonderful things, bringing all these benefits that come from people who, a place where you have more people walking and cycling and, and sort of in this human scale instead of locked away from each other in these space-consuming metal boxes. Yeah, so I, I joined the Ealing Cycling Campaign. We moved out to Ealing. We finally moved into a place that had cycle storage. And so I got a, I got a just a bog-standard Omafitz. I got a I got an actual Gazelle Classic, I think it was called. It really was a step-through frame, just the three gears and, and uh, backpedal brakes. And it had a front brake as well, front dynamo lights so that I didn't ever have to think about if there were batteries in the lights and that kind of thing. And I put I put baskets on and played around with different ways of carrying things because I wanted something that could carry a lot of stuff. And yeah, that just became my bike. And I ended up, it's funny because I, I, I thought, well, this is going to be my bike and I'm never going to go far or fast, but I don't have to. This is just the way I'm going to get around my local area and, and sort of explore these streets. But of course, it was probably only a, a couple of years into it that I, I first started to, that I first planned my first, excuse me, long distance cycle tour. And that was a bit of a funny thing. The London Cycling Campaign, of which the Ealing Cycling Campaign is just the sort of the Ealing Borough chapter, they'd put out a, they'd, they'd put out a call to say, look, how about a fundraising ride from London to Amsterdam? And they planned it. It was, a, it was rather hard for me. I still don't think I could even do it today the way they had it planned. They were going to do it in like four days. And I said, well, I could probably do it in six, but I'm willing to give it a go and like see how far I get. And, and if, I, if I stop at some point, well, then I've made it that far and that's more than I've ever done, right? So why not? And doing, doing something I've never done before, that people will donate to support me in that, to just expand my boundaries and my horizons. And so that fell apart for a bunch of logistical reasons. But then also tragically, we lost one of the leading lights in Ealing Cycling Campaign, uh, a man named David Eels. And he, uh, he died rather suddenly of a, of a tragic condition known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And I went to, we all went to the funeral and he, he was someone who I think he inspired a lot of us because he would just do things. He, would just, he was always someone who would just say, he wouldn't say like, oh, well, let's think about how we can do this. He'd just be like, no, let's just start doing it. And he was also someone who started a tradition that I tried to keep up of going to all the other local borough groups just so that we had communication between them so that we didn't have this funny boundary between Ealing and Hounslow or Ealing and Brent or whatever. We, we could, we could 
be in communication with the folks in Richmond because we ride through Richmond too, right? And so I, I basically managed to get most of the people who went with me on that trip to Amsterdam the first year. We did it in David Eels's memory. We were all people who had known him with, I think, one exception. And and we just, we did it, right? I mean, it really was the, the I will say the first day was difficult, but because it was in the UK, right? It was in England, it was going through Kent, which wasn't easy, but I've never, it, once we got to the, the continent and it was flat and we had a whole lot of infrastructure to explore, then it was fantastic. And the interesting thing was it really woke up a lot of the people, sort of the older generation who went with us uh, from ECC, because we weren't going on like a touring holiday on, you know, mountain roads somewhere in, in the Alps or something funny like that, or in Spain or whatever. We were, we were going specifically to ride on urban cycle tracks, right? And we, were, and we were going sort of west to east. So we started out in the UK where they were, we had some good examples by that point. We had, we had CS3 along the embankment at that point. And we had, we had Quietway 1, which goes through a bunch of different low traffic neighborhoods on its way to Greenwich, which has been steadily getting better over the years in that section although the, the other ends are, are a bit questionable still. And then it would just be Kent and certain areas where you just realize how bad it was. Then you get to France. France has some good stuff around Dunkirk and that area. Okay. You get to Belgium and you go, oh, this is nice. And riding through Belgium, you'd think, well, this is amazing, right? If we could build this in the UK, this would be fantastic. And then you cross the border into the Netherlands and suddenly you go, wow, what they are doing in Belgium is so behind the times. They're, they're missing out, right? Belgium is missing out on what the Netherlands is doing. And I, I learned also to sort of stop and say, look, 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 let's actually take a look at this junction that we've just crossed through. Let's just do another loop of it because I want to show you some things about this, some details about the way it's been engineered that have just been thoughtful in the entire you know, scheme of things. How, how the cars, before they even approach this, there's a little jog they have to do to the left. It's almost imperceptible on the map. But when you look straight ahead, you can see, oh yeah, I can see, it's hard for me to see through to there. Yet they have to sort of jog and they slow down to do it. And these, everything's at a right angle and there's all this, the space given starts here instead of up here, it, all kinds of little details that you realize all sort of come together to make something that just reduces conflict and allows you to cross safely, really, no matter, no matter your ability. Yeah. And so uh, that was uh that was a tradition I did annually for many years until, until the COVID thing locked us all in our homes. So obviously all this new infrastructure, cycling infrastructure, active travel infrastructure has been great for people like me and people like Nick, but you only have to look at the title of this podcast to know that it's not popular with everyone. So next I wanted to hear from Nick about whether or not he finds the fact that these measures can be so controversial surprising or whether or not that's something he's come to expect. Here's what he had to say. It's interesting because when I think back to Cycleway 3, CS3, along the embankment, I definitely remember that being controversial, and I remember it being not that surprising that it was controversial. It was very much a prestige project by the mayor of London. It was definitely visible. It was extremely, it was, it was right there on the embankment in front of all these extreme, went past the Houses of Parliament, right? It still goes through the Houses of Parliament. Goes, goes through Buckingham Palace grounds in all these funny ways, right? I mean, there was no way it was not going to be controversial. And I remember watching it sort of from the sidelines, watching the, the, the changes come and sort of watching the obstacles fall away slowly one by one. And I think I was more surprised at the time that London as a city could overcome 
this without just just get it done. Just show a bit of strength, show a bit of show a bit of initiative, and, and build something build something that would actually make the, make it a better city. And this was also about the time that Jeanette Sadiq Khan had written her book, and she opens with actually a kind of a, a, a gentle, friendly critique of Jane Jacobs because she says when we are finding ourselves in positions of power over cities and the way they're built, we mustn't be afraid to be a little bit like Robert Moses just do it for the pedestrians and the people cycling and the people getting around in all kinds of other ways that are active travel instead of doing it just for cars and for the for the oil lobby right so th that was an interesting an interesting passage in in the Jeanette side it's, it's called uh, street fight is is the book but it's interesting because even that calls back but it, it says maybe maybe we should actually when we have our hands on the levers of power like we were voted into the into the the decision making roles people trusted us to make good decisions and we know that the good decision right now is to is to en to enable active travel by making it safer and we have the we have the facility to do it quickly and cheaply or also to do it in these incredibly robust ways like CS3. So yeah, why not? But I have a feeling you're also asking about Ealing in some ways. So I definitely was, it's hard to say that I was surprised at the controversy here because one of the, when I joined LCC, when I joined the Ealing cycling campaign and got involved with LCC, one of the things that was happening was the Waltham Forest scheme. And from outside, the Waltham Forest scheme looked like a scheme that was brilliant, but which all the locals hated, and it was going, it was doomed to die, right? And so I remember looking at that and saying, well, that'd be nice if it ever lasted, but quite frankly, I don't, I don't think it's got a chance, but it survived. And it survived particularly because it turns out that a lot of the controversy was it was it was organized by some smaller groups and it was definitely not representative of the public sentiment, or at least it wasn't representative of what the public sentiment would be once it was completed. And it's now beloved by pretty much everyone. And it's 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 common now to, to show people who are facing controversy in LTN areas this year to show them the photos of the protests from 2015 or 2014 or whenever that was, and then to show them the, the area now and how it's just taken for granted that this is a nice area now. So yeah, I think I definitely expected there to be some, some controversy. I think one of the things that may be a little bit different or feels a bit different because obviously it's, it's, it's my neighborhoods, it's my backyard here, but I definitely feel like a lot of the opposition, there's a feeling that it, it, it might be an expression of more general frustrations. I mean, and I don't mean to say that in a, in a belittling way, but I think 2020 was a rough year for a lot of people. I think a lot of people were hit hard by all sorts of things that happened all at once. I mean, we had, we had this disease, so people were dying. And so people's loved ones were dying and people were also staying locked indoors to avoid dying, which is, it's not friendly to the psyche. It's not kind to, the, to our, our, our mental health at all. And then also the economy was experiencing all sorts of shocks all over the place. And so one thing that I noticed was that independent business owners tended to be the most panicked and they tended to be the loudest to, to just sort of trying to look for something, anything to fix this. And I think if I were an independent businessman who had a, a business that was suffering in 2020, 
I could look out at the broader geopolitical spectrum. I could look at the, the, the events happening worldwide, these, these pandemics and economic shifts and changes in markets and changes in government and whatever. And I could think, well, that's all this mass, it's weather, right? I can't shout at the clouds. I can't shout at the sky. But the LTN, well, it's an actual planter. It's, it's smaller than my sofa and it's right there. And I can, I can take out my anger on that. That's something about my scale that I can, I can focus my anger on. And so I feel like a lot of people, this was just the one place where they could express their anger, their rage, their frustration. And I think it tended to take a lot of punches that, that they would probably rather have, have given to the coronavirus itself or something else. Yeah. And, and that said, I think, I do think that there are some organizations who recognize this early on and found it useful. I don't want to make it seem like it's all a scam, all some puppet masters pulling people's strings, but I think there are definitely people who have been extremely shrewd in their manipulation of people's feelings about this topic. And I think that it's something where, even if it wasn't conscious, I think a lot of these opposition groups have been able to harness a lot of anger and frustration at other things and, and direct it straight at the safer street schemes. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's disappointing. It, it, the thing that made these schemes available so quickly is possibly the thing that also it had, it had the largest increase in, in, in frustration, I think. Yeah, I think that resonates with me as well. I think for me, as someone who was able to sort of keep my job and keep my health through mm. the past year, very, very luckily, I think the biggest loss for me over the past year has been a sense of control over my life. And as someone who is a massive control freak, that is very important to me and has always been very important to me. And I think the representation of just sort of like, God, I can't even choose where I drive anymore. Like I can't even yeah. choose how I get to the supermarket must have been a real, a real sort of like, I always think of like the straw that broke the camel's back kind of, yeah. kind of cliche. Yeah, of just there are so many and, and, in, and it seeming, I think it really highlighted to me the reaction that people have had, how bad of a job we've done as a society of talking about the damages that cars can cause when we're you know using them too much when we're using them more than we should particularly in an urban environment and I think one of the most common responses that I'll get if I'm talking about trying not to drive is well what's the problem with driving anyway and in in the midst of a climate crisis in the midst of an air pollution crisis in the midst of road rage and congestion and all of these you know things that that seem to be it's just like so obvious that cars are a problem. I think it's it's one of those things. I often think about a speech that David Foster Wallace made as part of a commencement address, where he's telling this sort of fable of an old an old fish swims past two young fish and says, "Nice water today, hey!" And then the two fish carry on and go, "What's water?" That sort of when you're in the midst of something, you can't see it. It's such a weird time in London because we've got this brilliant infrastructure that's coming in. I cycled out to Green Park from Brixton yesterday and for the vast majority, I was on protected cycle lanes or very quiet roads and I passed thousands of other cyclists and just had an incredibly wonderful time. And we're at this point where the infrastructure is good. The policy sort of like the outline policy that's come out in gear change is fantastic. But for the most part, I think 
it hasn't been it hasn't been driven by public pressure in the same way that I would expect to see in other campaigns. And actually we're at yeah. a certain point where we sort of have to be like all of the surveys that come out of like how many people in London are like, oh, well, I would love to cycle, but it's not safe enough. And it's just like, I think you're seeing a London from 20 years ago. I don't know if you're seeing a London now. And obviously there are, there are lots of, lots of places that don't have great infrastructure. And there are a lot of places where things are lagging behind, but for the most part, as a campaigner, it's such a weird phenomenon for me to see policy be ahead of the public. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you talk about the straw that broke the camel's back. I think that can also happen to to people who are just on the verge of choosing cycling. A lot of little things can can sort of keep you from doing it. It's very easy not to make a decision, right, from a from an inertia standpoint. And I think the so I have a friend who lives in Paris, but she lives in Versailles, right? So the west to the west of Paris, it's about as far away from central Paris as Ealing is from central London, if you can imagine. And so Paris has built some amazing infrastructure and she has plenty of co-workers who are building infrastructure and, and being France, they've actually been going into the office a lot more than we have. Like, I, I don't know about you, but my office has been closed down for the past well over a year. Like I couldn't go in if we wanted to. We're Anyway, but, and so I keep bringing up these maps and trying to show, well, you could probably cycle in. I mean, I was able to give yourself a little bit of time. You could try, you could probably do it. And then you wouldn't have to be on the RER. You wouldn't have to feel like you were crowded in with all these people. And it's interesting that there's all this amazing infrastructure along the Seine and kind of leading up to her office. But the question then becomes, but which bridge do I take? And really it's that 150 meters across the Seine that makes her go, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Right. Because and it's not because she's somehow being unreasonable. It really is just like it really isn't worth it unless the journey is safe and the journey isn't safe unless that that every last meter is. And so if I have to take this bridge where I feel like I'm taking my life in my hands, well, that's a little different to me from where I sit than than an entire journey that feels like that. Right. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult thing. Yeah. What else was I going to say? We we're talking so. about. The straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, and yeah. those changes. I think on the on the like small part of unsafe infrastructure to get to the quiet way into London from here in Brixton, there's an intersection that I have to go through in Loughborough Junction, and I remember always looking at it as the like junction that proved to me that I could never be a cyclist because every time I saw it, I would see it and think, "There's no way." that I could ever do that. It just looks terrifying. And I remember the first few times, and I talk about this a lot, that the chasm between being able to cycle and not being able to cycle seems very, very big when you're on the I can't cycle side of it and then much smaller when you are when you suddenly can. And I remember like within a two weeks of getting my bike I'd and starting to ride in London, I'd stopped wheeling my bike through the intersection and I'd started riding through it. And now anytime I go in central London on my bike, which is coming up to be most sort of like every week, if not more, I have to go through that intersection. And I'm still frightened of it. And I still see people who have had accidents there all the time. I saw a cyclist hit there the other day. I saw an, an e, someone on an e-scooter who was hit there and they had the sort of like the paramedics had the sheets up over them and like just a really terrifying stuff. And it's one of those things. It's the only part of my journey now that frightens me, but on a bad day, it's enough to keep me at home. And that's, it's just such a, it is just such a sad thing. And it's, it is, it is so strange. Cause like 
as a cyclist, I also know, well, I could just get off my bike and walk it through that intersection. And your friends could just get off the bike and walk her bike that 150 meters and that would be fine. But when you're commuting somewhere and when you're going somewhere, you don't want to have to do that level of thinking. Like when I get on the train, even though the train sucks, I'm on the train. And then I don't have to think about anything until I get to my, to my office. And like, we really need to reduce that sort of cognitive load, but also that sort of where, where, where am I taking my life into my hands? Like, it's just ridiculous that anyone would have to think about that on their way to work or on their way to get a coffee or meet a friend or do whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. It's interesting that you said, I think you said, that's not me was the phrase you used, which is interesting because I think that's also part of this inertia as well in that I mentioned that I saw, you know, I said, well, there's the, the two types of people I saw growing up who rode bikes were the, the racers and the, and the, the sort of the environmentalists, the sort of the crunchy hippie types. And I feel like part of what kept me away from it for so long was that I just didn't feel myself represented. I just, I wasn't, there was no, there was no portly dad contingent out on upright bikes where I was. I actually had a neighbor who was from Luxembourg. And I remember as a teenager, she lent me her bike once and I rode it around. And I remember being impressed with how smooth and how easy it was and how, how quick the gear change was and how everything was, I just, I was impressed by it. But I remember absolutely thinking, oh, but this isn't a real bike. Right, which is astonishing given that I ended up later in my in my life, when I became a dad myself, I went out and bought pretty much exactly that bike, but in black. And yeah, it's interesting. I think I think I think this is also an important force in where the opposition comes from as well, is that if you don't see yourself represented, and maybe you just aren't willing to accept that there are pe- messages coming out that are that are showing that no, 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 people like you are doing this as well. But I think that part of the opposition comes from treating cycling not as an activity, but as some kind of in-group, as some kind of membership in, a, in, a, in an identity. And I think that's a real problem. And it's something that we've, we, try and, we try and argue against online, but how can you argue against, no, no, this isn't an identity, this is, a, this is merely an activity. And it's one that's available to so many more people than you might think, to which point, usually the person who is invested in their own identity as someone who is not by that point they're on the defensive and they're going to they're going to try and debunk you and they're going to try and find that one person who they know who absolutely could never cycle and it's and they're going to lead you on a little too far until you you might make the mistake of saying oh i'm sure they could find we can we can come up with something when really you should say well maybe not but that's fine. We're not trying to ban cars. We're just trying to find a more appropriate use for them in cities, right? Um, I mean, obviously nobody's suggesting getting rid of ambulances or fire engines or anything. That would be ridiculous. And many of us ride buses and a lot of, I, I personally, this is a bit of more backstory. I, in the US, when you turn 15, in school, you get driver's education. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but it's certainly not the case here. So it's just a, it's a, it's like an after-school class. And so I went and I did the theory portion. And one of the things they showed us was a film called Mechanized Death. Mechanized Death was a 1960s, early 60s. I mean, it was early days of the federal highway program being mostly complete. And it was basically meant to scare you straight as a teenager to drive safely, right? Because they'd say, oh, if you don't, you know, if you don't pay attention to the road and keep your safety at all times, this could happen to you, right? And I remember absolutely watching some of the sort of blurry eight millimeter color, bad color footage of, of, of medics lifting people out of crashes from the 1950s. So it was grisly and blurry and the soundtrack was probably more unsettling than the actual visuals, but it was, it was meant to be terrifying. And I was terrified and I thought, are you kidding me? I could do this to someone? 
right? So everyone there was trying to get this message of, ha ha ha, I'm a teenager, I'm invincible, I'll never die. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? Like, this is basically like, you're telling me that I have to go out in the streets of Seattle every day, twice a day, aim a gun down the street and fire and hope I don't hit anybody, right? And so that was, that was the moment for me, actually. Was, that was when I said, look, I'm not taking the practical. I'm never getting into the car and taking the exam and learning to drive. That's it. That's not for me. And so that's, that was something that hit me very personally. And it was a very, I, I quickly sort of defined myself that way, right? And yet, even then, I didn't see cycling as for me for another good 20 years, right? God, it's just, I'm, I'm the same, right? Like, I never saw myself represented. And it wasn't for a very long time. And it wasn't until I started to see not even people that were like me, but people that I knew intimately. And I was like, I was like, you're afraid of walking home by yourself at nighttime. Or like you get like, anytime I walk down the hallway and you're not expecting me to be there, you like leap a meter in the air. Like, how can I be more scared of something than you are? Like you are like the definition of a scary cat and you're capable of cycling in London. Like maybe it's not as frightening as I thought it was. And that was what I ended up sort of discovering. Like, this is not as frightening as it as I thought it was, but it took me seeing that there's part of it is representation. Part of it is seeing people who seemed like me out there, but also part of it was like people who had more reason to be frightened than I did, I think. So like when I saw parents with their young kids or when I saw pregnant women or when I saw older people or different things like that, to me, it was just like, this is clearly a safer activity than I think it is, or it must be more enjoyable than I think it is. And it's like that sort of perception of it is not something I'm entirely proud of, to be honest, because I think what is inherent is that in, in that is an idea that must have been in my thinking, which is I am more capable than you. And if you can do it, I can do it. And that's not, that's not a good thought to have about anybody. But it is one of those things of just like, I was always told that cycling was for or, or how I perceived the world was that cycling was for incredibly capable people and incredibly mm. capable people only. And that meant you either had to be very, very fit, very, very brave, very, very arrogant or any of those things. And it was just like, I haven't been surprised that I'm good at cycling. I'm terrible at cycling. I still can't signal. It's been a year. I still can't signal. I still wobble. I still crash and fall. I'm not good at cycling. What I've been surprised by is the fact that I can be terrible at it and still use it as a mode of transportation to get around the city and still be fine, right? Like I don't have to be capable yeah. to do it. I just have to exist. And as someone who who really struggled, I had, I had, I love my mom and dad. They're incredible parents. They would be the first to admit that they were very, very overprotective. And when I started learning how to drive, I hated it because they were so scared that something was going to happen to me. And when, when I was driving and they were in the car, they were so scared that I was going to make a mistake. And I developed real anxiety around it and just like never wanted to do it. And I got my driver's license, but I don't think I've driven in 10 years and I would not want to, would not want to drive again. And I've got like you, I remember when I was growing up, my mom had cancer and she's, she's well now and she's, she's healthy. And I'm so grateful for that. But on the day we took her home from the hospital, we were about to make this turn in this intersection and the light went green and my dad didn't go. And my mom was like, what are you doing? And out of the corner of his eye, my dad had seen this car that was just like absolutely speeding through the, through the intersection. It came, it ran the red light. It crashed into the car that went, that was next to us and hit them on the sort of like the back of the car and they spun out and crashed into a telegraph pole. 
and seemingly both were fine like it was one of those things that if he had gone it would have hit his driver's side of me in the back seat but because he hadn't and my mom I remember my mom just bursting into tears and her having this like I don't know if we ever talked about it but the, the story I've told myself from that was that this sort of like she was meant to die idea like she'd just come out of the hospital from having surgery for cancer and then was almost if things had gone slightly differently would have been killed in this car accident and just like how horrific of a thing that is to just potentially experience in your in your day-to-day life and like the sort of horrors of the sort of horrors of what cars can what cars can do to cities and like obviously they're the brilliant things that have given us so much as well but like like you I've definitely latched on to some sort of painful memories and I'm like I don't I don't want that to be a part of my sort of day-to-day life. You mentioned seeing people seeing people out on the, your own streets that made you think, oh, I can do this. And I have to say there were definitely a few of those for me as well. And I think the big one for me was when I was still in Hammersmith and I'd been, I'd been reading and watching a lot of grainy early YouTube videos and things of, of you know, Dutch cycling. And I remember I actually saw a man in a gray suit riding a, an upright bike of some kind down, down sort of a one-way street that's sort of a parallel street to King Street, the main, the main shopping road in Hammersmith. It's kind of a busy road as a result. It's kind of a gyratory system. It's kind of a mess. And he was riding it. And uh, there was a woman in, a, in a, a business suit with a skirt even riding backy on his, his pannier rack. And I think he was holding a briefcase in one hand. She was holding hers in the other one. So they were counterbalanced exactly. And I just watched that. And I just thought, what if, maybe, maybe, maybe Hammersmith isn't too absurd a place to do this, right? We're, we started to get more cargo trike families in the neighborhood I was in, which was also encouraging and fantastic. And yeah, so I think there was definitely a certain amount of, and the, for me also, I think the thing that made me decide to get involved was the die-in at bank after, I forget her name now, but there was a die-in at bank. And I just remember watching a lot of the photographs from that. It was at the time when I think Anne Kenrick was one of the trustees of LCC. And there are a lot of, and so she had the bullhorn at that, at that die-in. And I remember there was a photograph of a guy, just a, a man who had a, he had printed this sign that said, I'm not a cyclist. I am many things. I am a, a dad. I am a professional. I am a, a whatever. And he listed all these things that he felt made up his actual identity that he wanted to share with the world, right? And I happened to ride a bike. And this was this, this very tall sign he was carrying to this, this die-in protest. And I remember reading that and going, that's it. That's me, right? I now see myself represented. I now realize that this is the message that I can now cling on to, which is I'm not a cyclist, right? It's not like I'm a you know, communist or fascist or something. It's not, it's not, I'm not a devotee of cyclism in some funny way, right? I'm just a dad who thinks that getting around by bike and on foot and taking public transport and all these things is just so much nicer for me and for everybody else than if I were to drive a car. And I think that's just, yeah, sure, absolutely. I would say it's, it's important to me. And perhaps the fact that I don't drive might be what I'd consider part of my identity in, at some point now. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that cyclism is somehow this in, important thing. And yet I love bikes. I love riding bikes. It's, it's an immense pleasure. And uh, regarding getting off and walking through junctions, I, because again, I, I grew up in very, very hilly country. And so I used to joke that, and I still do, that getting off and walking is not cheating, which you'd hear people say that, right? Or at least they'd be afraid that they'd be thought of as cheating for doing something other than toughing it out up a hill. I'd say it's, it's gear zero. It's choosing the appropriate gear for terrain, right? And absolutely 
through a terrifying junction where the only way you can get across with signal control protection is to, to get off and walk, that is absolutely the appropriate, the appropriate way to cross that junction. Absolutely. Yeah. So never, never ever be ashamed of getting off and walking somewhere because that's not your fault. That's whoever designed that stupid junction. Totally. And like, if I was on a bus and all of a sudden the bus was in loads of traffic, I wouldn't be like, well, I've chosen this form of transportation now, so I've got to stick it out. And like, this is this is who I am and what I'm doing today. I'd be like, I'm going to get off and walk the last 200 meters because this is ridiculous, right? Yeah. I don't know why, you know, we attach this sort of like, I think it's because cyclists as a group are so scrutinized that it's very difficult not to internalize that and not to scrutinize yourself against like standards that don't need. But on the, on the identity thing, another thing I want to say is that I recently had a conversation with a journalist about LPNs and I hope he doesn't listen to this, but maybe he will. But I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought we had an amazing day. I thought I, I like he came out to the LPN. We hung out together in it. It was a gorgeous day. The biggest problem that we had was during our interview, so many police cars went past with their blue lights on that like it kept interrupting the recording of the interview because they were just like so loud. And then when he published his story about me, he was like, Sarah Berry has a new hobby and that was the that was the headline sentence that he used and I was just kind of like it's just the last word that I would use to describe what cycling is right like I love reading reading is a massive part of my life last year I read 100 books during lockdown and I was incredibly proud of that fact reading is a hobby right I love it I'm evangelical about it love talking to anyone I can about it the same way that I do that with cycling right but that is a hobby like watercolors watching Grey's Anatomy all of these things big parts of me big things I love they're all hobbies like commuting to work on a train is not a hobby in the same way as like cycling somewhere is not a hobby right like it's it's a tool that enables you like cycling is, a, is wonderful and it's a great it's really enjoyable it's an amazing way of getting around but it's a way of getting around it's a way of getting to things right I remember having a conversation an argument with someone on on Twitter once about cycling and ableism which we ended up coming to a really we ended up having a really good conversation and coming to a really good place but one of the things they said to me during that argument was I'm not interested in making all of these changes in my life just to develop a new hobby that I'm not actually all that interested in and it was I was just like I just think about that message all the time because it's just like no one would describe driving to where they're going as a hobby or getting the train or getting the bus or even yeah. like a plane anywhere as a hobby and just this like fundamental misunderstanding of a tool which is like a means by which we do other important yeah. things not like the means to them to itself and like you see representations of that like you see not representations but like the ramifications of that in so many other aspects of society right like how we store bikes and and how cycling is represented in you know in film and or, or different things like that and it just made me yeah it's definitely it's definitely not something that I it's not a part of my identity oh actually it probably is now like I mean, but, it's hard for us to deny that now right when we're yeah. we're here having this conversation, conversation. I think we're having this conversation because we care passionately enough about it that we we do want we do feel maybe we have something to say mm. uh, and that it does come from inside us so perhaps perhaps that's something unique to those of us who who have this kind of 
this kind of platform or this kind of message. But yeah, I think, but I think it's not, it's not that cycling itself is, is the identity, right? It's more just the fact that we feel we can make our city nicer. And that's, I think the, that's what makes it more important for me. Totally. And that's it. That's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy this episode or you enjoy the podcast in general, I'd be super grateful if you left it a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a friend who you think might enjoy the show, then I'd also be really grateful if you sent it to them. You could let them know that we're available wherever they listen to their podcasts. And that's it. Thank you for hanging out with me today. I hope whatever it is you're doing next, you enjoy the hell out of it. Speak soon. Thank you.